Good evening and welcome to Editing Aloud in a week in which South Africa's first ever loan from the International Monetary Fund is causing an absolute storm on social media and in fact in the markets in general. I have with me this evening uh, Professor Danny Bradlow of the University of Pretoria who argued in a recent piece in the conversation that South Africans should accept that the IMF is neither their worst enemy nor their saviour. Danny, can you explain why we would expect that it was either our worst enemy or our saviour? Um, I why can't explain why people would think that, but it's been um, the tenor, <coughs> excuse me, the tenor in, the, in a lot of the media um, reports that people are very concerned about going to the IMF means losing our sovereignty, or on the other hand, it'll restore economic sanity and force us to adopt the kinds of policies that the government, or at least in the opinion of some people, should have adopted many years ago. Um, I, I would say neither of these really um, amount, are, are correct. The IMF is just another source of funds. Um, the only reason we should borrow is if we can borrow more cheaply and on better terms than we can get the money elsewhere. And the truth is that at the moment, the IMF is offering the money um, at 1% interest and with very low conditions attached to it. So it makes good sense as a potential source and that the government needs to look carefully to make sure it is a good source. Um, it's important to remember we're a member of the IMF. One of the rights of membership is to be able to borrow from the IMF. Um, and that in doing that is an act of sovereignty. It's saying that we, we uh, as a state, have decided that we can borrow, that we have the uh, initiative and the prerogative to borrow and that we're going to make the decision to do that. So that, that those are the reasons I think neither of those views are, are really the right view. Danny, the, there was a perception certainly that this loan, this loan which is under the rapid financing instrument, which is one of the COVID related facilities which the IMF is extending to countries. I think it's already done loans to 77 countries worth about $82 billion. There was certainly the perception which the finance minister and, and government put about in general that this loan didn't come with a kind of conditionality that the sort of bogeyman IMF loans of the past have come with. Is that true? Because it certainly doesn't seem to come with absolutely no conditions. It definitely doesn't come with no conditions. And no one would lend $4.2 billion with no conditions. But the conditions are, are very light. The conditions are basically that you have an emergency, that the emergency is causing, uh, and the emergency in this case is the pandemic, that it's causing the country to have a financial crisis. Um, and that it needs the money to deal with that crisis and that it can show that it will be able to repay the money so that its debt, this isn't going to push it into an unsustainable debt situation and that it has a, a plan for getting back into um, the position it was in before it needed this money. And that's the purpose of the letter of intent that the Minister of Finance and the Governor of the Reserve Bank sent to the IMF. You've not had a chance to but, look at that, Danny, you've not had a chance to look at that letter, which was published, I think, yesterday, Wednesday, on the, um, on the IMF website as part of the staff report that the IMF uh, board considers. Uh, is there anything in that letter that surprises you? Um, I would say most of it does not, is not surprising. Most of it was um, uh, previewed by the minister in the budget statement in June and in the midterm 
budget in um, October well, and in the ANC's um, policy document. I suppose the only potential surprise in the document is the, the hint or the statement that um, the government is considering a debt ceiling um, for, for the future, which I think, I mean, unless they're thinking of changing the law and writing a debt ceiling into the law, um, doesn't really amount to a very hard constraint on what the government can do in the future. Danny, I'm going to want to come back to that debt ceiling issue, but I want to bring in Rob Rose, Financial Mail editor here. Rob, I mean, did the sort of social media storm in response to this loan surprise you? It was, it really seemed to have caused quite a storm. No, I mean, I suppose, Hillary, it's in two, two respects. I mean, the, the one side of it is that there's, you know, there's the hard ideologues who talk about us selling our sovereignty down the river. Um, and obviously that's just people allowed to have their viewpoints on Twitter. It doesn't mean it's informed or valuable at all. Um, that's Twitter. It's the drunken tavern, as Ignati called it. Um, and you can ignore that. But I think another part of it, you know, also quite skeptical, is a lot of people suggesting that they don't have much faith that the government will use the money properly. And I think, I mean, these both tap into undercurrents in the South African psyche at the moment. Um, the fact that government hasn't explained very well what it's doing, the fact that it doesn't take the country into its confidence in big decisions, um, and then the fact that we've had massive lack of accountability for things that have happened in the past. And there's no sense that, that the ruling party is, is aware of where it's um, messed up and, and is really eager to change in the right way. They talk about it, but talk is cheap. Yeah, look, Kanyo Miyanda, thanks for coming in um, and joining us. Um, you might think that South Africa had never borrowed anything before. I mean, the response to the loan, um, do you think it, it's, it does reflect, as Rob suggests, a, 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 a sort of failure on government's part in a way to share with the country what it was doing and why it was doing it? Yeah, it's interesting, Hillary, like just to add to what Rob was saying, I mean, I think as you've written many times about the budget deficits and how much we need to raise this year, I think we're looking at, uh, what, 700 billion or something. So this is like, what, like 10%? 777. <laughs> 777. <laughs> so when you think of it in that context, this is actually quite a small amount of money. So it's a bit strange that it, yeah, that in this, this is sort of a bit hard reaction. But as Rob said, it's, it's, I think it's all to do with the, with the ideologies about the IMF and sovereignty. But then my view on these things is like, you know, you, you, you don't go to the IMF unless you need to, right? So, like, so if you go to a space where you, when you put yourself in a position where you need somebody else's money, it's a bit rich then to be crying about sovereignty. But the, the, the main way to, to get your sovereignty or keep your sovereignty is to like keep living within your own means or, or manage your own affairs so you don't have to go and ask Rob for money and that, so that he can tell you what to do with your life, you know? Actually, I would never do that. <laughs> in, in that context, 70, 70 billion uh, rand is kind of too little. I mean, would there have been a case, Danny, for us to go straight for the kind of the real thing, the full-on IMF program with, uh, with more conditionality where we could presumably have got a lot more money than 70 billion? Um, and what well, would that have meant? Yeah. Well, firstly, just, you know, every country borrows. Um, there's no country in the world that doesn't have a debt. And so it's, it's an exercise in sovereignty, really, borrowing. It's true that in a crisis you, you're in a weaker position, but you still have a capacity to negotiate with your creditors and, and get a good deal. So that I, I don't think the mere fact that we borrow says anything other than that we're a sovereign state that has needs and in a crisis has particular needs. 
Um, in terms, if going, I would would have been, I would not have supported going for a full-blown IMF standby arrangement at this point. Um, we might have got a bit more money because when you get money from the IMF, the amount you can borrow is a, a is, is related to one the country's quota, and we're getting 100% of our quota now. Um, from a standby arrangement, over time, you could get significantly more. You can get, a, if I remember correctly, about three times the quota over a period of time. Um, I don't know that we need that money now. Um, it would come with a lot more conditions, and it would be a much tougher loan to negotiate. And so I'm not sure why we would want to do that at this particular time. I mean, in a sense, the government has that in its back pocket if the crisis goes on or if it doesn't use the money wisely and it, we end up um, needing more money. I mean, I think we should keep in, I, don't, I certainly don't want it to be interpreted as defending corruption or misuse of our money. But I think we should remember many of the countries that go to the IMF to get funding have the same problem that we do. Um, as you, you probably saw in the, the letter of intent, one of the things that uh, the Reserve Bank had to agree to is a safeguard analysis, which means that the IMF can come in and make sure that it's properly audited, it can speak to the external auditors and the internal auditors at the bank to make sure the money is being used and reported properly. And the reason that requirement is there is because a number of reserve of central banks around the world were hiding debts from the IMF and not giving them a true picture. Um, in our region, the most prominent example of that is Mozambique, which you might remember hit a $2 billion loan. Um, there was the tuna fish loan. From it was for tuna boats the or tuna something. Fish the, tuna, the tuna yeah. loans, yes. So, so, you know, if you put it in that context, we're, we're bad and corruption's never justifiable, but we're not the worst. Um, and so hopefully the government is learning and will use the money more wisely than, um, than we have in the past. Lukanya, I can see you nodding sagely. What are the chances that we do use the money more, more wisely than we, do in the, than we have done in the past? I mean, I, I can only agree with, with all of that. And also, I wanted to stress, I wasn't saying there's anything necessarily wrong with actually getting debt. I mean, that's why we have bond markets and things like that. I think when you get yourself in a situation where you can't raise your debt in normal markets, like i.e. like raising the bond markets, you have to go to the institution. Then I think maybe, maybe there's a problem there. Like, and, and then, then, you, then you kind of just cry too much about sovereignty in, in, in that context. But as far as the government and the use of money, I mean, yes, of course, they, I mean, there is going to be these headlines every day about, about specific cases of corruption or mismanagement. But I think like, I, was looking, I was more a bit encouraged looking at the macro picture really, really to see like, I mean, these are not really conditions, these are sort of commitments which they may or may not make. But what, what, what I find quite strikingly positive is a sort of like broad consensus that, that we seem to have about around this. At least within the ANC, anyway, at least the official. I mean, it seems to be very much in line with what Titan Boweni has said in, 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 his, in, 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 sorry, in his budget and also like in his policy, in his reform paper. Like similar stuff has been said by Lassila Khanyaho in the past. I mean, even Enno Kodongwan came in like this week, business said disputing that he'd ever like ever opposed anything Tito had ever said. So like, I think that's, that that might be a good start. Maybe like, who knows? Maybe maybe this could things could be different this time. You never know. Rob, will things be different this um, time? In a sense, we've 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 committed to the IMF to do 
we've just got a minute or so to go, but we've committed to the IMF to do what we had said we were going to do anyway. So is it going to be different this time? Are we going to do it this time? I don't, I don't think the corruption is necessarily the biggest problem. I think it's the legitimacy of government in terms of doing what it says it's going to do. It's in terms of improving business confidence in a wider sense, um, where, whether they're able to be to cut the public wage bill is a big issue, and I just don't know if they have the political stomach for that fight. So I think it's it's more sort of the ideological fraying, which I think leads to a skepticism over whether they can do what they say they will. We are going to take Henry, a quick break. Can I add something? Danny, you've got 30 seconds. Please do. I, no, the, the one thing just I was going to say is one of the reasons governments sometimes go to the IMF is because they want the support of the IMF to do what they, they know they need to do, but they can't do politically at home. And so it might be that they want the IMF there to help them do something difficult, like cut the wage bill or deal with the SOEs. Steinhoff, Rob Rose, I think your financial mail cover this week is about Steinhoff. Um, in the light of the settlement which the company has offered, which is really a fraction of what it owes its creditors. Um, just tell us about it and in particular how its largest creditor, Christovisa, has responded and why. Hmm. Um, well, I mean, Christovisa claimed something like 59 billion rand from Steinhoff, which th some thought was a bit rich given the fact that he was the chair of Steinhoff during the years when Marcus Joster was busy looting it, allegedly. Um, but, you know, they've, they've proposed the settlement Steinhoff have because they realize that they have something like 90 legal claims and there's no chance of saving that company unless they just sort out the legal claims. Even then, you know, it's, it's not certain that they will save it because they've got this 10 billion euro debt which they've got to sort out. So, but anyway, so their proposal is that, you know, of the 136 billion rand being claimed, they, they, they're offering to pay about 16 and a half billion. So it's about, you know, a tenth, a tenth of what they... Uh, less, less than that, actually, of, of what their actually um, their liability is, um, and Christovisa of that is, is, you know, he'll probably get about nine billion of that. Um, but I mean, our, our cover story this week is about what Christo's lost over the last four years, and it's something spectacular. It's something like 120 billion rand of his, of his personal wealth, um, his investments in Steinoff, Shoprite, Sprites. I mean, Christo's had a horror couple of years. So I suppose it's about how you recover from losing that amount of money and what that does to you. I mean, Steinhoff, Steinhoff is, is an example of corporate sector and the lack of accountability. But, you know, there's been a general collapse in so many blue chips as well. I mean, ShopRite is one of those companies that you thought was going to be bulletproof, but it isn't. Um, and Christo has borne the brunt of that, I suppose. Um, yeah, so I suppose, you know, we have a general sense where a lot of our companies are weaker. And instead, what you have in the stock markets is you have companies like Naspers doing really well. Overseas company, you have the commodities companies doing well because of the overseas commodity prices and the locally faced, the locally oriented companies are, are struggling. But go back to, let's talk first about Christovisa himself. When an individual loses that much money, I mean, what is the consequence? I mean, presumably you still can still pay the grocery bill, but are there wider consequences to one individual going down by that much? Um, I mean, you're right, he certainly can pay the grocery bill. Um, we worked out that he still had, just in terms of his listed investments, 9 billion rand, and that's besides, you know, of his shame, wife's as farm. they say, yes. Well, yes. Still 136 billion to 9 billion is still quite a traumatic fall. Um, and I think, you know, once you get that rich and you've been fated in the overseas newspapers as, as the king of the UK high street, 
when this kind of thing happens to you, it's psychologically quite damaging. I mean, I've spoken to Christo quite a lot, and he talks about how he struggled to trust people again, and, you know, he, he made judgment calls based on the people he'd work with, based on their characters, and he was proven fatally wrong with Marcus Houston. So I think it's, it's firstly, it's difficult when you're in your late 70s to come back and sort of start your business career again. Um, and then, you know, I think your, your faith in humanity is a bit rattled when the people you put your trust in to run these companies turn out to be frauds. So I think, you know, I, I don't know, I suppose, as a journalist, what it's like to lose 120 billion, but I'm sure it's not, not pleasant. And Rob, you still, you still genuinely believe that he sat there chairing the company and didn't know? <laughs> I mean, certainly many there's no indication. Believe that. There, mm. There's no indication from any of the forensic reports that he knew. Um, and, you know, the information I've had from him is that he, you know, it was quite a complicated fraud. I mean, things like cash flows were forged. I mean, it was very intricate. Um, and Christo was a, was a guy who started running a diamond company, he ran a retailer. You know, it was cash, is cash in the bank, never mind intricate financial fraud. So. You know, you could certainly accuse him of being naive, perhaps, but I certainly don't think there's any indication he, he was in on this. Look, Anya, Rob's spoken about the companies that have been hit. I mean, what, what does it look like? What does the market look like? And, uh, you know, what has, in a way, been the most shocking outcome of, of, from, a, from a markets and share price point of view of, of this crisis? Yeah, I must say, when it comes to Stanhope, I do feel like a bit of an imposter because, like, I think all I know about Stanhope I read from Rob's book, and as Rob knows, I think I was only halfway through when I left it on a plane, and then, and then, for them flying hasn't been allowed ever since. So I'm not able to get to, to, to catch up on it. Yeah, but it's been. I, mean, I think Rob like sort of touched on it a little bit. Actually, Rob was going to ask you something first before I go into that. Like, uh, I mean, uh, reading about the, the terms of the settlement where people are getting paid in some cash and some of it in. Pepco shares. I mean, like, it seems a bit odd, you know, if, if Christopher is uh, like, you know, bought into Steinhoff using Pepco shares, uh, and now they want to like pay him back a fraction of his, with a fraction of Pepco mm -hmm. shares that that belonged to him in the first place. Something, something that doesn't seem right in, in this whole thing, I must say. But so, on the overall market, like as Rob was saying, like, I mean, we look at the JSE, it actually looked good. Like, I think when I looked, the last time I looked was, it was only down 1% for the year, which sounds quite, a, quite amazing when you consider the depression economy we're in. And until you look very closely and then you discover that like, about 30% of that market is basically in aspects and process and yeah. then you take a, when you look at the local stocks, then you look at banks, look at retailers, and then, and then, it's, then it's like carnage. And, and, yeah, the Naspers thing is quite remarkable because they did that whole complex unbundling um, a year ago, whenever it was, and, and they, they're now back to the same or before uh, percentage of the indexes they actually were <laughs> before, they, before they unbundled. I mean, But Hillary, I mean, Lucanio is right there. I mean, I think the issue is that money is moved. It, it might be on a macro level, we're down 1% for the year, which isn't much, but the macro level impact on the micro level impact on some companies is disastrous. The banks, for example, have been smacked something silly. Nedbank is down a monstrous amount for the year. The retailers too. And I think in Business Day, um, Alan Gray was saying they find the banks quite compelling at these kind of values. But that's because you're looking at a massive 40% down. So the 1% down for the year means that your overall pension fund might not look too bad. But for some companies, this, this period has been a disaster. And what, how does that play out? I mean, for banks, that means their capital gets eroded, doesn't it? I mean, the, 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 the decline in share prices has quite severe consequences for certainly the financial sector, Rob. How does it, how does it play out in, 
Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> certainly the equity terms, levels like. being quite low. I mean, I suppose the real issue is that it's it's below what the fair value is, even if you assume profits are going to get smacked quite hard by COVID. And certainly bad loans, bad debts for the banks. Um, I, I imagine something like Capitec, which is more exposed to the bottom, is going to face is going to face something of a disaster pretty soon um, because there's so many people who just can't afford to pay. We've, we're only starting to see the jobs carnage now. So in another six months, the people who've borrowed money perhaps to tie themselves over the COVID period will find out that there's, they're just not going to be able to repay. So I think the storm in bad debts is only, is only coming for the banks. And I think our banks have been quite conservative, um, as you know, at the top level. Um, but I think for more lower market oriented banks like Capitec, it's going to be it's going to be a disaster. And of course, Rob, you can also get on the insurance companies as well. I think we had uh, Liberty yesterday saying they're warning that they're going to have like a, a, an, an interim loss. And it's all really about, as you're saying, you know, people might have taken loans now, so that so, and now that, that and now they might have to go like cash in their pensions and do all sorts of other things, other desperate measures in order to, to stay afloat. Because like, you know, this this is not slowing down anytime soon, is it? I mean, it was this was not a three month crisis, and who knows, it might be like not even be a six or nine month crisis. Speaking and Hillary, of, I mean, yes. not, Rob, yes. Sorry, mm. I was going to say that, I mean, it doesn't help that, that there are fewer people who have jobs now and then the demands from states have increased dramatically. I mean, you look at ESCOM, you know, we're going to talk about ESCOM, but certainly the fact that they can now, you know, you're likely to feel a 10% impact on your pockets, never mind the fact that they've, they've raised rates so much in the last couple of years. I think the average middle class household, never mind people at the lower end, is really struggling. To, to survive in this particular scenario. Yeah, not a good time for Eskim to, from a, from a consumer point of view, from a business point of view, for Eskim to get that judgment. Lucanio, what is the implication of, of the judgment that the court handed down this week on Eskim, giving it back, as it were, the sort of 69 billion that the regulator took away? I mean, obviously, like, like uh, Hillary is a big relief for them. I mean, you, you we speak about Eskom and and and, and their debts the whole time, and I can ask like, what is half half, half, half a trillion or something, like what they, what they, they, they might be having to deal with. But in, obviously, they must celebrate now. But but it could be a pyrrhic victory for them, really, because because I think he maybe in some way it's accelerates their demise, you know, because like another, I mean, especially if you have like a reform in other parts of policy, then then, then more and more people will just be leaving the grid. So in a way, like you know, like it, it might accelerate what they what you call it that what they're desperate because you know, like they, they, they're still people who are not paying, so they, they still have to access those, and, and then they're squeezing and squeezing more the the, the paying customer. Then at some point, if the kind of paying customers get another opportunity to go somewhere else, then so this this, this might actually be a bad victory for them <laughs> if 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 it, if it makes enough enough people desperate to get out, and, and, and if the regulatory changes allow it. As, 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 as like, you know, if you read the government's like, letter to the IMF, they seem to say they're very committed to like, reform and opening up these key markets. So if I was ESCOM, I wouldn't I mean, I'll celebrate it, but it, like, it might be a short-term victory for that. Rob, I mean, yeah. If, if government does indeed allow people to leave the grid, um, is ESCOM going to be in, in effect in even worse trouble? I really hope so. I mean, they deserve it. The fact is, this is a company that hasn't hasn't done what it's meant to. It hasn't bothered cutting staff like it's meant to. It doesn't operate efficiently. Um, and I think them, along with the municipalities, deserve to get all the hell that's coming to them because they're fleecing people um, and they have no concern for the impact of it on the average person. And I feel like there needs to be a reckoning. Um, and it's a good thing that it happens to Eskom. I, you know, it's, it's difficult, obviously, when you're managing this. I think under the rates has just started and you inherit these legacy issues. But in a macro sense, 
the average consumer who you rely on as your customer, you're not providing electricity to them um, consistently and you're charging them way more than you used to. And I think that there, that creates, it, it, it contributes towards the fact that the consumer is just almost had it. <laughs> Our time is almost up, but we cannot go without a mention of our favorite subject and our favorite SOE, SAA. The new airline is going to be funded. Oh. Lucanio, from where is this money going to come? <laughs> I am it. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe next time, Hillary, next week, maybe a special guest with Kevin Godan. I think we would like, it's great to actually have him here so he can actually tell us. So he can tell you us know, like, who would put their money in a new airline. <laughs> Uh, with that, with, at this time, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how many times. I mean, if, if you're going to start a business style now, today, tomorrow, like, like you know, which would be the last industry you would you, would you get into? As it seems to me, the implication is that the money is going to come from outside somewhere, from some outside investors. Who knows? Maybe there is somebody out. Things like even if there was somebody out there who was seeing a long term, but but they're, they're struggling themselves. I mean, like Virgin and all these big names are also needing to get the mm -hmm. Like rescued themselves. So, so even if they were seeing a long-term view, they, they, at a short term, they, they really don't just don't have the funds to do it. So, so it's really interesting to see what actually where this is going to come from. Well, big question for next week then. That is all we have time for. Please join us again next week for another edition of Editing Aloud. And meanwhile, stay safe, stay well, and stay home if you can.